Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. It's a pleasure to welcome you to the Beeson Podcast today. My guest is the Reverend John Bell. John is from the country of Scotland, and he's been involved for a number of years with the Iona community. He's a world-renowned hymnodist, has written many beautiful songs and hymns of the church, but also as a preacher and teacher uh, of the Holy Scriptures. Uh, he's with us here at Sanford University to present a number of lectures in this area, and he shared in a worship service with us today here at Beeson Divinity School. So, John, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I wonder if you would begin just by saying a little bit about the Iona community. What is it? Where is it? Uh, what's its mission? How are you involved with it? Okay, it's it's actually the third community which has been on the island of Iona, which is a, a small island about three miles long by one mile wide, which is separated from America by nothing but water. And in terms of travel, it's about seven hours to the northwest of Glasgow if you travel by two boats and a bus and a train. <laughs> and that's where in 563 St. Columba, who was a, a, an important um, figure within the Celtic Church of Ireland, came partly uh, as an act of penitence because he had been in a quarrel and he was not on the winning side and he decided to leave his country and as an act of penitence go as an evangelist to Scotland. And he set up a mission there which had an effect on on Scotland itself, brought peace as well as the gospel. And the mission went further afield because he established monasteries in his own country of Ireland where a man called Columbanus was schooled who became one of the great European missionaries and, and rekindled the flame of faith in Europe all the way, in Columbanus's case, to Bobbio in Italy. The Celtic Church, uh, of which Columba was a, an abbot, existed in Iona until around the year 1000, when the, the Celtic expression of faith was subsumed into the Catholic Church generally, and then Benedictines came and they built uh, a monastery, a small monastery, with a cathedral church next to it. And they continued there until around 1540-1550 when there was the Reformation and the Scottish Presbyterians were iconoclasts so they, they smashed the building to bits mm. and with the stones they, they, they built houses on the island for the villagers. So it lay, uh, the, the island uh, has always had inhabitants on it but the, the abbey itself and the small cathedral were in ruins until the landlord, who was an Episcopalian, rebuilt the church part at the end of the 19th century, put it into a trust with, con with the condition that this building could be used for the worship of all traditions which were Christian and would belong to none. And that was to some extent to ensure that the Presbyterians, who earned the ascendancy at that time, did not get their hands on it. But having an ecumenical building in the middle of, a, of the Atlantic Ocean is, a, is all very well, but who's going to go to there if there's nowhere to stay? So in 1938, a man who was a Presbyterian pastor called George MacLeod, um, who had been working both in a very affluent part of Edinburgh and then a very poor part of Glasgow, felt a call on his life by God to revisit this place, which he had passed by on a sailing boat, and to rebuild the place of the common life, which was the monastery, so that people again might come and recreate there, go and retreat there, meet each other there, worship there. 
And while, like Bonhoeffer, with whom he had certain things in common, he had hoped to start a, a seminary, he realised in time that it would have been impractical uh, so far away from the mainland. But as a place of reconciliation and as a place of prayer and of refreshment, then it had a role. So mm-hmm. over about 20, 1938 to 1963, all these summers, people came to put the brick, the stones back together to rebuild the place. And by 1963, it looked as it would have looked round about 1535. It's a beautiful building. I it's think a, it's there, a beautiful yeah. building. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's been to one of our uh, three centres, but the main centre for conference and for people to go and retreat. Mm-hmm. And we welcome... Usually from about Easter until September, uh, people come from all around the world. And our our hope is that there people will be reconciled uh, to God, certainly, but also to each other. And we have a policy of ensuring that the kind of things that we offer attract a cross-section of people. So we would... We have also a policy of of subsidising people who are very poor, uh, so that you might have uh, two or three very wealthy people from one part of the world with very poor women from Glasgow, mm. and, and, and they'll engage with each other. And then the wealthy discover that the poor have gifts to give, mm. which is you know a model that Jesus was well acquainted with. You mentioned George MacLeod and the tradition of uh, Scottish Presbyterianism that he came from, and it's your tradition, I think, yeah, right? Yeah, I'm a Presbyterian pastor. And I wanted to ask you, um, in the Reformed tradition generally, there is this movement of iconoclasm and this fear almost yeah. of painting, of, of art, of uh, expressions like this. It seems in Iona you've been able to both uh, keep this Scottish uh, Reformed tradition in a very positive way, but also incorporate some of these other things that are often not a part of that tradition. Is that an accurate description? And yes. If so, how have you done that? Well, that, yeah, that an accurate description. The iconoclasm was, was I, th- I think, which particularly in John Knox, who was the great reformer in Scotland, was was keenest on that nothing either in terms of music or of artifacts should resemble the world outside so the churches were really very plain places I mean, one of my beliefs which I, I think MacLeod would have shared was that within the heart of every Presbyterian there's a desire for colour and symbol and some kind of ritual more than just words so because this building was not a Presbyterian building and because the community which formed around MacLeod um, not a, a resident community we have people who work there for us but, but the Iona community is more an association of men and women who keep a rule of faith and life wherever they are and whatever job um, is their vocation but because we've had always an ecumenical constituency it's been important that we don't just continue a, a rather a doer sombre Presbyterian tradition but Iona was a place where for example in the 60s and 70s people were singing hymns from Malawi and from Zimbabwe um, where jazz was being played sometimes and because we've encouraged through the years artists and other people to come then artefacts of which we don't have 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 lots but these occasionally will will appear and people will will give things there's a huge sculpture by Liptich which is in the middle of the cloister of he's a Jew and he does this sculpture of the Annunciation of the dove coming down uh, the Holy Spirit to um, to impregnate Mary, and I think perhaps more through our music than than other things, we've moved away from singing metrical psalms, which was the great Presbyterian tradition, to rejoicing in the diversity of musical gifts that God has given, not just to the church in Europe, but to the church throughout the world. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you people there who think, where are the monks? They expect you know monks to be walking about with brown habits on, and they might see. Uh, young people 
who are dancing to a song like Sia Hamba from South Africa. Mm. And, and those who, who want this to be a, a theme park of a previous day get very upset. But I, I think that the, one of the symbols, I suppose, of Iona is that uh, you can both preserve in an ancient place that which is eternal, which is the Word of God, but you can also find the means by which it is experienced, discussed, opened up, represented in culture in, in ever new ways. And you've had this commitment as a community since certainly McLeod, maybe earlier, to a a care for the poor, the oppressed, the marginalized, Mm -hmm. really for all of God's people. Uh, And that still actualizes itself in acts of mercy and compassion and hospitality. Yes, and our our members, uh, we have a a five-fold rule of life and faith, and the rule has to do with our money, our prayer life, uh, um, what we do with our time and our engagement in matters of social justice, which for many of our members who live all over the United Kingdom uh, will involve some kind of service to and and accompanying people who are disadvantaged and, and who are poor. M- you know, my own unit is a, a resource group for worship and liturgy, but one of our four staff is employed in, in two areas of multiple deprivation in Glasgow, working in churches which are incredibly impoverished. But also she's a deacon of the Church of Scotland. Um, she's also involved in local schools where teachers are beset by some pupils who they cannot control. And so this girl will take them away because she, she understands that these, are, these kids have to be valued, but the kids in the classroom who are being disturbed by them also have to be valued. And so the, the school is very glad that an employee of a Christian organisation takes these six boys away to do a programme which will allow them to find themselves and their worth and then reintegrate them back into the classroom. And many of our members in their different walks of life would, would bear witness to either being engaged with, with the poor or we have a number of members who are engaged with asylum seekers who are mm. on the fringes of our society. You know, we have a good number in Glasgow and I have, I have two colleagues who will take into their homes asylum seekers mm. and allow them to feel that they're valued and once their case has been cleared, if they are able to stay in Britain, then we'll help them to find accommodation and find employment. Does the community have an abbot or some form of rule, uh, as, as it would be in a traditional monastic uh, place? Yeah, we don't have an abbot, we have a leader. And a leader. the leader is a, someone who will serve for four years, extendable to seven. And our members take, uh, after a two-year joining programme, we avow ourselves to be part of the community for one year at a time. It's not a life commitment. And that's because people get married or people find you know, different occupations or there might be a different range of, of um, callings on them by God that they might want to serve in some other way. And the rule um, which MacLeod initiated and which has remained virtually the same is, as I, I said, to do with, to do with um, accounting to each other for our prayer life, which is the reason why I joined. I realised that as a Presbyterian pastor, nobody might ever ask me if I prayed Mm. until I died, until I had to face God in heaven. And I was keen to be be accountable to people for my own devotional life. Um, We're accountable to each other for our money because we believe that all money belongs to God. And so as well as being committed to tithing, uh, for the purposes of God's kingdom, we also talk about what we do with the 90% which we keep. We believe that time is a gift of God and that we should be accountable for how we use time, that, that particularly, particularly in the beginning for pastors who would be overworked, 
mm-hmm. and who would never take Sabbath yeah. or take rest. Mm-hmm. And then uh, in various ways uh, we've been engaged in, uh, we're all expected to be engaged in action for social justice. And we meet regionally once a month, and that's in small groups is where we where we um, account to each other for our life, where we discuss things which are pertinent to community. And then three times a year we're in plenary when we have a conference and might bring people in just to fertilise our minds. I think we see ourselves really as a kind of catalyst within the churches, mm-hmm. raising up from time to time issues which are biblically based but may have slipped from priority, of which one at the moment is the whole issue of how we treat the earth as yes. God's gift. Say a little more about that. Uh, we call it in this country creation care, and there's a, a kind of burgeoning interest, especially yeah. among younger Christians and evangelicals, to be engaged with this world which God made and placed us in in terms of stewardship. Sure. How does this work itself out with Iona? Well, we, we, uh, we are now, uh, one of the things that we talk to each other about is, is um, how, how we use energy. You know, every one of our members is, is being asked to do a a kind of accounting for how we use energy. Now, for, for me, it's difficult because I fly a lot, which mm-hmm. is, you know, a major call. But the community decided that um, that would be permissible because of the nature of my job, and other people within the community would try to reduce theirs to compensate for, for what might be seen as my, access, my excess. But I don't drive a car, so I save in other, other ways. But um, we've, we've, we've both uh, a theological study, which is ongoing, which is looking at Scripture and, and, and looking... Uh, it's stewardship, yes, and how we how we care for this world, which God continues to love and continues to regenerate. But also looking at one of the aspects which has kind of slipped from view, and which people like Tar de Chardin brought to our attention, that that God has created the world to be a conduit of God's glory. It shows forth God's glory, mm. and. This is not just in the beauty of the earth; it's also in the in the song of creation, which the Psalms and particularly Isaiah evokes. That the the trees shall clap their hands, the rivers shall shall rejoice, that the the hills will skip like lambs. And this is uh, for me indicative of of creation being one of the forums of praise. Creation offers praise to God, and we cannot understand that. But it was happening before humanity walked the earth. Mm. And our guardianship of the earth is not just to ensure that for our children's children there will be oil and other, you know, natural materials, but also that creation will be allowed to worship its maker. So mm. for me, mm. uh, ecology is doxology, that the care of the earth is a way of ensuring that God is praised. Mm, that's great. Um, what about the Eucharist? Uh, is it w- weekly celebrated? At what, what is the meaning of coming around the table of the Lord? Well, we... Uh, I suppose unusually for we're not all Presbyterians but but many of us are and unusually we have Eucharist twice a week in the Abbey and that's been the case since the beginning Uh, the Reformers uh, Calvin particularly was keen that the Eucharist be every week Mm. and so was Knox until there became a kind of means test whereby people in the 16th century were being questioned as to whether between one Eucharist and another they'd kept faithful to, to their maker uh, we've we, we've by, we've gone beyond that, and now every Sunday there's Eucharist, and every Thursday night, and the two are different in as much as uh, McLeod saw that you you had the kind of priestly Eucharist where there was the table in which we remember the sacrifice of Christ for all, but that this also was something which happened in a fairly. Uh, 
uh, intimate space that the upper room was a place where the disciples had been before, that they had gathered with Jesus on many occasions to break bread, to share food, that one of his great affections seems to have been enjoying food with with a whole range of people, wealthy and poor. Mm. You know. So on the while on the Sunday we gather and it's a fairly formal Eucharist with which much the same as you would have in the chapel with people singing the the, the sanctus and so on. Uh, on the Thursday night we have the table, a long table up the middle of the abbey and people gather round it on either side. Or sometimes if there's not too many people we'll have it in the nave and then you have you have uh, people sitting all round on either side and people will pass the bread and wine from, from person to person and so sense that kind of intimacy which was present in the, in the, in the first celebration. And uh, since I've been working there on Monday, Thursday, on the night in which we remember the institution of the Lord's Supper, we have the Lord's Supper upstairs in the refectory because mm. it's an upstairs room. Mm. Then we go down into cloisters, remember the betrayal of Jesus in the garden, and then go into the church to, to see the extinguishing of the lights and to recite Psalm 22. Mm. Do you practice the foot washing? Yes, the foot washing happens as well. Uh-huh. On that Monday, yeah, Thursday. On the Monday, Thursday. Uh-huh. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, the work you've been called to do in liturgy and music. Um, but uh, m- much of your music I have seen comes under the name of the wild goose. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what is the wild goose? Uh, it's the, the wild goose is one of two ancient symbols for the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Celts uh, had a great a great insight, that, that which was enshrined in Scripture, that God cannot be contained in one image. You know, the one picture is not enough, and the Bible is like a panoply of God's self-revelations to humanity. And so when they were dealing with a divine reality, you know, like wisdom, they would have the owl and the salmon. The owl is intellectual wisdom, the salmon is intuitive wisdom. And when they came to to uh, deal with the, with the Holy Spirit, they saw the dove clearly in Scripture, alighting in, above Jesus' head at his baptism. But also they saw that Pentecost is not a tidy affair or a calm affair mm. and that one of the functions of the Spirit, as we find in the Psalms and elsewhere, is to, is to, is to provoke, is to disturb, is to bring to crisis. And so they chose uh, the, the wild goose as a symbol of, of the Spirit coming uh, you don't know when and leaving you don't know when. And when the Spirit's around, sometimes feathers are ruffled and, and, and mm. there's, a, there's a disturbing of the waters in order that we see ourselves into a deeper truth than we had before. So it's so, a little different image of the diff- Holy Spirit yeah. than... It's, it's, it's a complimentary, complimentary image. I would, mm-hmm. I would never... You know, it was a minor image, but it was a mm-hmm. complimentary image. Mm-hmm. And uh, we use that as the as the as uh, that title for the resource group which I work with. Could you say a little about your own interest in, in hymnody and how, how it is that you write hymns? There, there are many things that are mysterious to me in life, and how anyone could write a hymn is one of them. Well, I never really knew, knew much about it. It wasn't my my kind of primary vocation, but when I was doing youth work, I was a regional organiser for the Church of Scotland when I was ordained. Kids weren't singing, partly because we had a hymnal which was more redolent of the 19th century than the 20th century. And so at a number of events, we had a monthly event in Glasgow, a big youth rally, and I... Th- you know, I began to write some material, to reframe old material, to write new material, to gather songs that were coming from the global church. And and always out of a particular context, a need, you know, there is no song that deals with this, this issue. Or we've discovered this in a Bible study and it might be worth reflecting on. 
or we have um, we have an occasion which is coming up, and it would be important that this was was recognised within the song of the church. But since the beginning, I've always you know written cooperatively. I don't believe that the hymns of the church are are private poems which are indicative of a person's uh, own. Uh, devotional time. Sometimes they are, but I don't think, as Bonhoeffer, you know, points out in the cost of discipleship, we shouldn't be voyeurs at either our or anyone else's prayer time. And so I believe that there should always be a corporate provenance for hymns. And when I write, I write with my colleague, mm-hmm. and I'll do most of the work, but he'll scrutinise it. Uh, and then we'll we'll share it with other people who might say the harmony is lousy. You'll have to change this. We don't like this tune. And ultimately, for me, the text has to... You have to be able to say, this text speaks of God to us, and or, and or, this speaks of us to God. Then people can give it an amen. But if people are just fascinated by a collation of words that sound beautiful but don't make sense, then let it be called a private poem. Don't let it be called a hymn for the church. Mm-hmm. All, all the hymns that we have... Uh, the best ones are, 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 are hymns that to which people have assented. So before, we never write for publication, although we've published a lot, but it's always uh, that which has been sung for a while and perhaps was written five or eight years ago. We don't, mm-hmm. we don't write for instant publication. I think that, 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 that uh, to honour God, you have to allow the people to say this is significant for us. You mentioned Bonhoeffer, and uh, this semester at Beeson Divinity School, we've been looking at the Barman Declaration, Bonhoeffer, Niemöller, some of those great figures, and I've been struck in rereading that material how important song and hymnody was to them. Even in imprisonment, even in the concentration camps, uh, the Bible, yes, and the hymnal, Mm -hmm. and how this sustained them in a time of great darkness and uh, I think we lose a great deal uh, if if we don't open ourselves up to what the Spirit can say to us that way. Oh, I, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, it's also because we leave we 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 learn at least lay people learn much of their theology from hymns, mm-hmm. so they're more important than we think. And you know these kind of casual ditties that are flung together with easy chords. One has to ask: Is this preparing people for eternity or for service in the world, or is it just a pleasant thing which we sing and then we dispose of because it's gone off the screen? And, you know, Bonhoeffer, uh, when I was speaking this morning, I mentioned that he had been in a church, an Abyssinian Baptist church, where um, Lowell, who was the, the pastor, used spirituals. He was a brilliant intellectual, but he used spirituals because spirituals condensed theology, and they said that which was ultimately true by way of biblical story and also by way of biblical hope. You know, one of the, the great losses, I think, of the 20th, 21st century is that in going over unquestionably to mobile technology, particularly to um, computers and things like that, our memory has been uh, divorced from uh, from one of its purposes, which mm-hmm. is to contain words, poems, melodies, which are there as a treasure house. You know, Jesus in, in, in the Gospels quotes the Psalms, quotes mm. the prophets, not because he's looking up a concordance at his side, but because this is the story which is inside him. And the song which we remember is one of the ways in which we can let the story of faith dwell in our hearts so that should there be no Bible, the, the truth of God might come back to us in these, in these words. What do you mean by the song of the assembly? 
Is that what we would call congregational singing or something altogether different? <laughs> it's because when I work in the States, I work with Baptists, with Pentecostals, <laughs> with Catholics. They call, everything calls, you know, has a different name. And my publisher is a, is a call in Chicago GIA. I've um, been great people, and they, they are a Roman Catholic publisher. Mm. And, and they refer to the congregation as the assembly because in the Roman Catholic Church, if you say the congregation, they think it means a group of nuns. <laughs> yes, <laughs> so right. That, so that's, <laughs> no. And, and in my own country, in Scotland, I would never see assembly, but it's, it's because I'm this. Because there it has still a different meaning, right? Like the general assembly of the whole oh, church. Oh, that's right, exactly. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, so when I'm in the States, I use assembly more often than congregation. When I'm in, uh, in Britain, I use congregation rather than assembly. But what do you mean is the singing of the, the, whole, people of the of whole people of God? Uh-huh. Yeah. Which, you know, the Psalms, when they evoke praise, they say, all people who on earth do dwell, or um, sing to the Lord a new song. And it's not just the musicians, not just those who are gifted, not just the instrumentalists, but all the people of God who are called upon to obey what I'd call the 11th commandment. My guest today on the Beeson Podcast has been the Reverend John Bell. He's a member of the community of Iona. Thank you, John, for this conversation and for your presence here today. Thank you. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.